0: Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the Editor-in-Chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill. In this episode, we'll hear from Lucas Thornton, who's a writer majoring in English and philosophy with a minor in creative writing. We'll start with hearing him read his short story, Scenes from a County Health Department. We hope you enjoy.
1: Scenes from a county health department. Scene one, five-star review. This room is designed to torture me. On the wall, there is a chart that rates every type of contraception on a scale of one to five stars. The coveted five stars of infallible infertility belongs to vasectomies and tube tying. Two stars, my level, is home to condoms. Admittedly, it's a step above the one-star pullout method, but according to this chart, 15 out of 100 women still become pregnant with condoms. On top of possibly having chlamydia, I might be a father. I wonder if chlamydia can transfer from mother to child. If so, poor kid. Scene 2. The test. The waiting is the worst part. The test isn't even that bad. It only hurts for a moment. The doctor, a middle-wage woman who obviously has seen this before since she was speedy and shoving a dry Q-tip down my urethra, Somehow my shirt, which I was holding up, found its way into my mouth and between my teeth. I felt a prickling sensation. My eyes wobbled between the gloved hands of the doctor grabbing my penis and the embarrassed nurse holding a clipboard over her mouth as she observed the process. Scene 3, easy reading. You know, I didn't think I had HIV prior to coming here, but after reading a few pamphlets on it, I think I may be infected. The writers of these pamphlets, they're very sure of themselves. Sex without a condom or a rubber, as the pamphlet parenthesizes, must lead to disease. A lingering cough or a cold you can't shake or some of the earliest signs of HIV. Get tested now. Had I made a mistake by declining the doctor's suggestion that I get an HIV test? It was free, like everything else. All it required was a simple blood test, much easier than a urethral swab. According to the doctor, I would know my fate in 40 minutes flat. Scene 4. Anxiousness. I walk the floor. I pace from one end of the room to the other. I live in a box. My chest is being overtaken by butterflies and a tight feeling of imminent explosion. Chlamydia or no chlamydia, I will combust when the doctor walks in to announce my fate. Scene 5. Silent Assassin. I'm not diseased, I say to myself over and over again. But that's the rub of chlamydia, I think. Most males don't experience any symptoms. Something unseen could have been nibbling away at me for weeks. Scene 6, The Wrath of God. My old Sunday school teacher called AIDS a righteous plague sent down by God. Chlamydia can't be too different. Of course, the pain of its yoke isn't severe as AIDS, but it still captures the same aspect of retribution. I sinned and disease will punish me. I must pray. Scene 7, Our Father. Dear Lord, I'm going to be honest. I have sinned, and I need forgiveness. Yes, spiritual forgiveness would be nice, but right now in this room, I need physical forgiveness. I need your healing hand to reach out and wipe away any sickness I may have gotten from my last immoral encounter. If I am not sick, then good. You work in mysterious ways after all. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scene 8. Confession. I'm a sick man. "'I am a selfish man. I only pray when I'm in trouble. "'I do not give thanks unto God. I just beseech him. "'I deserve nothing from him. He should let me suffer. "'Instead of praying, I will distract myself with Temple Run.'" Scene 9, The Big Reveal "'So you tested positive?' "'Silence. I prescribed you some asthythromycin. "'You're going to need to take that for about four days.'" "'Silence.' Take the pills after meals. You'll want some food in your stomach when you take these. This is strong stuff. Silence. Now I'm going to give you some condoms. Use them next time. Do you know how to use them? I did not explode. I am still here. Scene 10, Aftermath. Turns out there is some pain afterwards. After the test, I mean. I'm standing over the toilet bowl. I have my pants unbuckled. My head is craned toward the ceiling. Everything goes well until a burning sensation scorches my penis. I look down immediately. No blood, just a smoldering pain within me. I guess this is the consequence of having a dry Q-tip penetrate your urethra. I live in fear of my next pee. Finale. A certain body part in a certain area due south of my nose. There's this Russian short story I like. It's by a guy named Gogol. And it's about a nose. I think it's supposed to be some sort of social satire, but I don't really care for that part. I just like it for its absurdity. Man loses his nose, finds his nose walking around, talks to his nose, and the nose returns to its rightful place. You don't need to know anything about this story except the fact that it exists, and I've been thinking about it lately. I'm thinking about it because I like this idea that the story implies a human body part can have a separate life from its owner. This is a comforting idea. It relieves me of responsibility for actions supposedly performed by yourself. My nose did it. It wasn't me. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is fiction. Absurdity.
0: That story can be found in our Spring 2020 issue, which is available online, Lucas, I'm so excited to get to talk with you today about your work.
1: It's good to be here.
0: So your stories have been published a few times in the journal now, and we we do have a blind reviewing process for the submissions, but they always blow the editorial staff away, not least because we're always surprised when they turn out to be fiction. So how do you approach realism in your writing?
1: I think for the past few stories, they've always been in uh, first person. And there's this sort of disconnect, you know, with um, third person. I mean, third person stories are fine. But, you know, because there's the I in the first person, you really uh, people seem to project their like uh, their own feelings uh, about first person, like the I is a stand in for the author and for some sort of uh, autobiographical stuff it is. But I've always liked the um, the first person and the little metafictional trick it does, where you think the author is, like, talking to you and narrating his or her own story. I've always liked uh, doing that, and um, there are uh, certain aspects of each story that I write in the first person that have, like, some real-life attributes or certain autobiographical elements. Like, um, in regards to this story, scenes from a county health department. I used to go uh, in high school to get my flu shot from uh, my local county health department, And uh, I live in Duplin County. It's about 45 minutes from Wilmington and very rural place. Um, And the health department is pretty grim. It's like the opposite of a doctor's office in a way. Uh, Like, you know, I I don't like going to the doctor, but I especially don't like going to the uh, health department because it's like this kind of uh, industrialized a doctor's office like on meth, I guess. But um, yeah, it's a grim place. And I would always go there to get my flu shot. And in the process of getting the flu shot, I always felt like I would get sick there or something. But in any case, um, they would always um, make you wait because, you know, it's this This is run by the state. There obviously has to be some times and they would put you in a room. And uh, there'd be all sort of all kinds of posters on the walls. And a lot of it, a lot of it being uh, like, you know, a poor rural health department, it'd be relating to like... Uh, contraception and uh, STI testing and all that. And uh, I, I've always been an anxious person and I can psych myself out sometimes. And uh, I, I remember like uh, senior year I uh, sat down there and this is the last time I got a flu shot from there. I sat down in the office and I just, you know, read all the um, dumb posters again. And there's, uh, you know, it's a, all these posters are really medical. There's no room for, no room for abstractions in these posters. But you get the sense when you sit down and read these posters uh, and pamphlets, especially like uh, ones relating to the, you know, the smorgasbord of uh, STIs out there, you get the impression that there's like uh, you almost like if you if you've done something like this, it's retribution in a way like you have sinned, you have done this. And I thought that was interesting. And I used the uh, grim nature of that to inform my writing of the story. and I also had to do some research on how the uh, chlamydia tests are administered. and I thought it was a uh, urine test when I first started out because that seemed most um most logical, but the the fact that it's a like a urethral swab for men at least that's a uh, it's quite scary.
0: So I was going to ask like what you did find most valuable and in- coming to this kind of realism like is it research is it some kind of emotional truth or is it having that like seed of of insider knowledge that you can steal for a given character that you find to be most important
1: so research is important you know there's some um, uh, I, I was recently reading a book and the book was like uh, it was uh, set in north carolina and uh, the narrator talked about it only taking 45 minutes to drive from the outer banks to Asheville, which is in the <laughs> mountains
0: that's not quite right. You know, if
1: you did, if the author did, if if the author did the research, you know, that'd be simple enough. She'd know that would wouldn't be a um, a fact, and that kind of stuff ruins the realism of a certain piece. And I think research is important, but arguably, in my opinion, I think uh, that kind of emotional truth is even more important because you can have all the research uh, you want in a story, and it'll seem like some kind of medical dossier rather than an actual story. But, you know, the I, I think the the main point of uh, Scenes from County Health Department or what gave it away in terms of its realism was the fact that I imagined myself to be uh, in the narrator's shoes and I gave him this air of um, anxiousness. And of course, anyone in his shoes would be anxious uh, unless you, I don't know, pretty much everyone would be anxious. And I think that was... If there was any one thing that really uh, made the realism more apparent, it was this air of anxiousness.
0: Yeah, I think you definitely succeeded in that kind of emotional truth and also the emotional salience because part of what makes the story so interesting is that interplay of the religious references and the religious guilt with the kind of inherent uncomfortability of being tested for an STD, like you mentioned. So what did you hope to accomplish by combining the two?
1: I wanted to highlight how... In the whole scheme of American life, there is this uh, backdrop of uh, puritanical religiosity. You know, Daniel Hawthorne in The Scarlet Letter highlighted this. But even if you go into a health department and you see these posters on the wall and uh, you, you know, take them, you apply them to yourselves and you take them as face value, it's uh, what it boils down to is uh you have sinned and you're going to pay the price i mean that's probably reading too much into it but especially people who have who are not religious but who have like you know no religious dogma it just creeps up on you it's a part of life and uh, i wanted to reflect or think or write about how that religious dogma can even invade your life in the most secular situations
0: yeah so the section that really sold me on this piece is the finale scene, where the narrator reflects on the Russian fable and how it maybe does or doesn't apply to his own medical woes. So can you talk about the decision to include this part and what it means for the story to you?
1: I've always loved the uh, stories. I've, I've always loved Russian literature, but uh, Nikolai Gogol was one of the first masters of the uh, Russian short story. He was alive in the four 1840s, 1850s, and uh, he was always interested in absurdity and every one of his short stories you read there's a hint of absurdity in it and social satire and the the story that i talk about is called the nose and um i've read that a few times and i read in one introduction to the nose uh, I-, I thought this was really funny. So, like, in-, in the original Russian, he calls the nose by a certain, like, slang term for a nose. I don't know what the English equivalent is, but, you know, you got nose and maybe you got schnoz, <laughs> I guess. But in the original Russian, he calls it, it's like this one-syllable word. And it's also, like, old-fashioned slang, like um vulgar slang for a penis. And me being inherently childish, I thought that was funny. And it also connects to some, like, inherent Freudian things of, like, castration in the story. But it also connects to what I talked about in the story, where, like, the nose runs off and does his own thing. And I was like, wouldn't it be so nice if, you know, you say, oh, it wasn't me, but a certain body part that had some sort of sentience that did it. I think the whole story, the uh, Gogol story, is about this guy who just really doesn't want to live with, live his own life and own up to his own actions. Mm-hmm. And I thought the uh, guilt and the manifestation of that guilt was interesting.
0: So in your short stories and all of this fictional work, when you could write about anything, why do you come back to topics of health and illness that is kind of the bread and butter of this journal?
1: Well, health, um, you can't live without it, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's something we... Take for granted so many, so many times, especially if you're young. And uh, I I certainly wake up most days and uh, feel like I'm invincible to a certain extent. Well, maybe not recently uh, with the whole coronavirus thing. But I have to say, when this story was written pre-coronavirus, you know, if you're a young person, you wake up and you have a certain sense of invulnerability, and it's very easy for that to be taken away. Um, You know, the coronavirus is an easy example where you can have symptoms for months afterwards and you can have scar tissue in your lungs. But there's other stuff, other um, more insidious stuff, I guess, that doesn't have apparent effects on you. Chlamydia, uh, which I write about in the story, is a light example. It's relatively minor. But you know some other stuff. I I don't know what the incubation period for HIV or AIDS is, but you know you can think you're invincible, but there's like something just slumbering in you that's going to wake up one of these days and just ruin your life. Health is an inherent part of the human experience, so uh, it's very valuable to write about. In the same way that like you know dying or money isn't always writable or always capable of being written about.
0: Yeah, I definitely see what you mean about the the current coronavirus, even like the less physical issues of health, like there's so much discussion lately about like, what is this doing to people's mental health? Like we're isolated, we're dealing with going back to school and everything while this is also going on. And so I wanted to ask, do you have any particular stories or advice from your English or maybe creative writing classes that you could share with other people looking to approach the fiction side of the health humanities?
1: Yeah, I think the, uh, probably the the best advice I've ever received in terms of story writing uh, was given to me by my creative uh, writing professor, uh, Daniel Wallace. He's here at the UNC Creative Writing Department. He said just, you know, write uh, simply. Previously to that class, I always regarded that advice as kind of mundane, because I read Ernest Hemingway. And uh, I was like, well, you know, th- these are really, these stories, uh, they're simply written, and they're either hit or miss. But, you know, you can still write beautifully. You can still write compelling stuff if you write simply. And uh, I wrote this one story in my first creative writing class here, and I think it was a fine story. The worst part of the story was uh, when I was f- referring to a book. I think I was referring to a big, you know, encyclopedia that was on a, a shelf. And rather than saying big encyclopedia or a large book, I said, uh gargantuan tome <laughs> like he was some medi- like the protagonist was some medieval scholar who just you know picks up a gargantuan tome from a shelf that will always haunt me until i die so now with that specter floating above me i always convince myself to uh write slowly write simply don't like throw everything at the wall and hope something sticks but be really decisive about the words on this page
0: That is really good advice, especially when we're trying to talk about illness and health, because like we really want to get to the truth there and to get to the the clarity as opposed to all of these nonsensical metaphors that maybe sound nice to the poet's ear, but are less useful. So as I mentioned, you've written a couple other stories that touch on illness or experiences with the medical system. What areas within that are you particularly interested in?
1: Well, I didn't really get to elaborate on this in scenes from a county health department, but I think the biggest factor in the, uh, like the whole scope of the American medical system is uh, the fact that you have to pay for stuff. You know, not pay like a little bit, but pay a lot, pay an arm and a leg. I wrote this uh, story uh, last, uh, it was published fall for 2019, and it was about protagonist, first person protagonist breaking his nose. You think about breaking your nose, like, you know, the nose is important and everything. That's funny. We're coming back to the nose. But you wouldn't think it would cost three grand to like fix it for a 15 minute operation, but it does. That's that's one of the scary things. And it's even scarier given the whole pandemic, where if you have to go in and go, get intubated, you don't have to pay like 10 grand. I'm sure uh, to give it more relevance, this story and this scene's from a county health department. I'm sure if you opted to go to a doctor's office, uh, one that has a less intimidating atmosphere, you'd have to pay some fee and i'm sure it wouldn't be too cheap and uh it just sucks to have to pay to live
0: yeah it's
1: even worse for those people who um you know don't have health insurance my father for example he uh he's self-employed he's a hairstylist and uh he doesn't make that much money and you know since he's self-employed he isn't on a health plan or anything doesn't have any insurance and if he did want to take out an insurance policy a simple one from blue cross or blue shield he would be like forking over more than a fourth of his earnings and of course he doesn't want to do that that being said it's uh getting harder to harder to justify considering he's now over 60 years old and we're in the midst of a pandemic and uh he's um works in the service industry. He's helping people out. He's over um, his customers all the time, clipping his hair. And I I feel like there should be some, um, some safety net for him.
0: Yeah, it's a really big issue. It's a complicated issue, but it's also such an important issue that I think you discuss really effectively in that piece, insurance fees, which is in the fall 2019 journal. So thank you so much for coming to talk to me about this and for reading your stories. This is going to be our, our first story in this podcast as opposed to poems. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: This was a fun opportunity. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find Lucas's stories and the rest of the Health Humanity Journal Spring 2020 issue on our website linked in the show notes or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Lucas for coming to talk with me, and be sure to watch for our next episode to hear more from the authors of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill.